0: As a church, we've been working our way through or flying our way through Mark's Gospel on Sunday mornings. We're trying to revisit each incident in the hope that every contact we have with Jesus will leave a trace of Jesus in us, on us, and with us. So far, we've looked at 25 incidents with 45 to go. So uh, if you have a Bible, uh, can I invite you to turn again to Mark chapter 6. And just as you're looking uh, for Mark chapter 6, let me ask you a question. Have you ever reconnected with someone, either personally or or via Facebook, for example? Someone that you went to school with or you grew up with, and they've turned out to be very different from how you remember them. It's a really interesting experience when that happens. Uh, Well, something like that happened with Jesus. He had left home some time ago, just an ordinary guy or as far as most people were concerned, just an ordinary guy. But now he's back, and he's different. In fact, he's back as a bit of a celebrity. He's changed. And so when they give him a teaching slot at the local synagogue, his ability to communicate and to inspire and to motivate was so impressive that those who heard him were amazed, they were astonished, they were taken aback, according to verse 2. Such gift he had. Such wisdom. He even does miracles. But hang on a wee minute. Let's not get too carried away, thought people. A 40 minute preach, a few wise words and a handful of striking unexplained acts may grab the headlines. May wow a new audience, but we have history with this guy. Approximately 30 years of history. He's just a carpenter. He's just a craftsman. He's Mary's boy. We know his brothers. We also know his sisters. He's nothing special. Please don't believe the hype. And so verse 3 finishes. Have a look at it. And they took offense at him. Or an alternative translation implies or reads, and they were scandalized by him. You see, these people decided to limit Jesus within a previous frame of reference. And so rather than embrace the incredible truth that he now taught, or the miracles he now did, they allowed their prejudice, their preconceived views, and their past ideas to get in the way. And that still happens. In fact, it's happening day in and day out, right up and down this country of ours in the 21st century. Many people in Northern Ireland in particular have got a concept of Jesus. They've been brought up with him. Or at least they've been brought up with an understanding of Jesus. There is history. But unfortunately, it's often half-remembered impressions from childhood. And fixed opinions based on previous experience. So many stereotypes. And the people of Nazareth needed to have their expectations and their prejudgments about Jesus confronted. And so do people in our community. Jesus still seems to be a prophet without honour around these parts. But notice the critical reason for everyone's struggle to accept Jesus. Verse 6 And he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, contrast that with this comment from our final incident we looked at last week, where Jesus said to the woman who reached out to her, him, Daughter, your faith has healed you. And the importance of faith can never be overemphasized. The people of Nazareth, they just knew about Jesus. But unlike the woman of Capernaum, they were unwilling to believe in Jesus. And again, that all sounds vaguely familiar. So many people today know something about Jesus. So few people today, it would seem, are prepared to believe in him. The people in Nazareth were given a fresh encounter with Jesus, but they dismissed that. And what I want to encourage us to do is to keep on praying that those we go to school with, we work with, we share this island with, that they would re engage with Jesus, that they would be reintroduced to Jesus, and ultimately that they would reach that place where they place their trust and faith in Him. It's time to move on. Jesus packs up and out. And he embarks on a kind of teaching tour around local villages, it says. And then we reach a really significant moment in the life and development in the calling of the twelve disciples. The time has come to go do. It's time to roll their sleeves up and get their hands dirty. Up to now they've been watching Jesus. They've been listening to Jesus. But now it's time to go and actually be Jesus. The classroom sessions are over. At least they're over for the time being. Enough theory. It's now time to get out and put all of this into practice. And so they're about to be sent on their first missions trip, their first placement, their first tour of duty. And the prospect probably filled these guys with a whole range of emotions. There was fear, there was excitement, there was anticipation. And so it must have been a huge relief whenever Jesus says to them, listen guys, I'm going to send you out in pairs. You're going to go two by two. Which became a kind of New Testament principle. You know, trying to witness for Jesus on your own can be really hard. Trying to be the only Christian at home is difficult. Trying to be the only Christian in your school, classroom, your university, lecture room. The only Christian in your workplace. That is a lonely place to be. But when there's one other person, just one There's a real sense of encouragement and strength and help. And so again this morning, let me encourage you, never forget to pray for those who you know who are the only Christians in their house. And the only Christian in whatever environment they find themselves in. And there are many here this morning who find themselves in that place. And we must never forget to pray for them. Back to our story. I wonder who went with who. Who did... Peter get to go with or who went with Judas or did they go together no idea the six twos are given authority over evil and unclean spirits it says they've got authority to demonstrate that the kingdom of God had arrived but any temptation or any inclination that these disciples had to rely on anything other than the words of Jesus was just stripped away from them ripped away from them And so they were told, you're going to take nothing for this journey, according to verse 8. The only thing you're able to take, actually, are these instructions. One staff, one tunic, no spare, and a pair of sandals. No food, no overnight bag, no money. And I want you to just imagine the sense of adventure, or could it have been total terror, as they set out. And I know and I fully appreciate that these commands were specific to that particular moment and context. But please don't forget that we have been commissioned. We have been sent to go and make disciples. We have been empowered to be His witnesses, according to Acts 1 verse 8. And therefore, we must begin each day, set out on each day with a similar sense of adventure and dependency. Complete trust in God alone. We have got everything we need. We've been totally resourced. And I know at times I may think, I would like to be better equipped. I would like to surround myself with a few more props and crutches. I would like a bigger budget. But the reality is that we have everything we need. We have the words of Jesus ringing in our ears. And so he sends us. He commissions us. Jesus prepared his disciples for the fact that not everyone would love what they had to share. Not everyone would welcome them with open arms. But that was a reality all Christian disciples would need to get used to. And in 2,000 years, absolutely nothing has changed. We must expect a reaction from people. And the reaction is not always positive. The disciples go. And they clearly make quite an impact because word gets to the king's attention. It grabs his attention, actually. And the rumour mill in first century Palestine was overworked regarding Jesus. There were three lines of thought emerging according to verses 14 and 15. Some thought he was a resurrected John the Baptist, the one that Herod had beheaded. We'll come to that story in a moment. There were others who thought he was Elijah, that Old Testament figure who raised people from the dead, who brought down fire from heaven, and who eventually was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. It's him, he's back. And then the third group of people thought, no, Jesus is just a prophet, like the prophets of a bygone era. King Herod was in no doubt who it was. Or was it just wishful thinking on his part? He was convinced that Jesus was, or he was hopeful that Jesus actually was John, back from the dead. But in verses 17 to 29... We read the kind of sordid, shabby and shameful tale that would have sent newspaper sales soaring because it involved those three things that everybody loves to read about, royalty, sex and religion. Scandal is written all over this next incident. King Herod had entered into a relationship with his brother's wife. A relationship which was immoral, it was against the law, it was set in a bad example. And so John the Baptist, as a man who was committed to truth, committed to integrity, he spoke into that situation. And that's never popular. You see, people can't handle the truth. Especially whenever it exposes lies, deceit and dishonesty. And so people react. They always react. Nobody likes their sinful choices and behaviour challenged. And so Herod throws John into prison. But Herodias, Herod's wife, is livid. She hates this man. She nurses a grudge against him. And Herod finds himself in a really difficult place because, on one hand, he really likes John. But on the other hand, he's committed to his new wife, his latest wife. Herod, you see, realizes John's different. He's righteous. He is uncomfortable, yes, but he's holy. And what he says is puzzling, but I like to listen to him. It's all there in verse 20. Do you know, wouldn't it be great that as truth speakers, that was how people saw us? Here's a great CV for a 21st century Christian. Righteous, holy, unsettling, puzzling, but worth hearing. And so, John is in prison. He's now out of sight. He's out of mind, so it's time for a party with an A-list guest list. And in terms of entertainment, Herod's dancing stepdaughter was top of the bill and she goes down a treat Herod loves it the dinner guests love it and so Herod acting on impulse makes one of those spare the moment rash decisions that he would live to regret for the rest of his life have you ever been there? ever done that? society is littered with people who have a momentary lapse of concentration a heat of the moment choice a seemed like a good idea at the time decision a caught in the atmosphere act a reckless promise an opportunity to impress your peers and if only if only you could turn the clock back but it's too late and before Herod knows it he said ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you and so the daughter asks for some time out to refer to mum who can't believe her luck and so the daughter goes back to Herod and asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter And Herod is deeply distressed, but he's nowhere to go. Because his promise was made under oath. And if he backs down now, he's going to lose face in front of his distinguished guests. And so the preacher, the truth speaker, is silenced. His voice cut off once and for all. And a severed head served on a platter. And the voice of reason, and the voice of hope, and the voice of conscience is quashed. No longer audible. And it is a shocking story. It's a scandalous story. But you know, that particular element of the story is so relevant to us. We live in a society. We live in a world that remains intent on dismissing and gagging any Christian voice any Christian voice of reason, hope and conscience. Just last month as one example, the BBC were criticised for stifling a Christian voice. And many of you will know or may not know that the BBC recently sacked its head of religious programmes, Michael Wakelin, a Methodist preacher. And to quote the Daily Telegraph on the 29th of March 2009, the emergence of a Muslim as the front-runner to succeed Wakeland and the recent appointment of a Sikh to produce songs of praise has raised fears that the Christian voice is being sidelined. And right across our globe, there are Christians currently being prosecuted by authorities, imprisoned, silenced, threatened. And we here in this context may never lose our heads, but let's make sure we don't lose our nerve. Let's be a bunch of edgy, holy, righteous truth speakers. Determined to get the kingdom message out there. Whatever others might think of us. Whatever others might do to us. Pray that in our context the Christian voice will not be silenced. Verse 30. The disciples return from their tour of duty. And they share what they've seen and said and done. But Jesus senses these people's need for refreshment. He knows they need time out. And so he offers those life-giving and life-re-giving words we all need to hear. Come with me. Buy yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they set off by boat for a solitary place. And I wonder how many of us need to do that this week. How many of us need... To draw aside with Jesus to a quiet place and enjoy some solitary refinement. And I know we're back to holy habits and I know we're back to guarding your heart. But you see trying to survive and grow and witness and speak up for and out for Jesus without carving out time to be alone with Jesus, it will result in a real struggle. The problem here in Mark 6 is that the planned rest didn't quite happen. The short boat trip was the only space they got because when they arrived at the intended solitary place, at least 5,000 people had turned up. Nightmare. How would you react? Don't you just hate it whenever someone or whenever a whole bunch of someone's wreck your plans? Disrupt your schedule? Mess up your diary? Disciples must have been well and truly hacked off. They needed a break. They needed a rest. And yet look at the reaction of Jesus in verse 34. When Jesus had landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. So following Jesus really is difficult. Being Jesus really is hard. Because Jesus didn't just feel sorry for them because that's not compassion. Compassion. His heart broke for him, his insides ached, and therefore he was moved to action, and that is compassion. And so the first thing that Jesus did was he shared spiritual food. Physical food was about to become an issue. But for the moment, spiritual sustenance, spiritual nourishment was and is absolutely essential. You see, man really doesn't live by bread alone, but actually lives or should live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And after teaching them many things, it's time to eat. But this is a remote place, and so the options are limited. In fact, they're non-existent. And so the disciples urged Jesus to send everyone away to get some food. And in response, Jesus said something that must have challenged their faith. He said, you give them something to eat. Now it seems that some of the disciples were really good at mental arithmetic. It's probably Judas. He was the treasurer after all. Because having looked around and done a few calculations, verse 37 tells us that they said, hey, it's going to take eight months' wages to feed this lot. That's impressive working out. And anyway, where are we going to get that sort of money, Jesus? And then Jesus says to them, well, what have you got? Five loaves, two fish, that's it. And then we all know what happened next. Let me make two comments. Last week we highlighted the fact that with God, small is big. That although we may feel insignificant, or since, you know, I have so little to offer. The reality is that whatever we have, whenever it's placed in God's hand, then its potential for greatness is incredible. Because Jesus took what they had and whenever they handed it over to him, the apparently little became a lot, the ordinary became extraordinary, the mundane became miraculous. Please don't underestimate yourself. Never underestimate your God and no, whoops, That all you have is all you need when placed in the master's hand. And secondly, let me say something about how that opening comment of verse 37 connects with the real difficulty people have with this story. Or other stories like it in God's word. Why did Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 plus hungry people? who weren't going to die if they missed a meal, and yet millions starve to death in our world and desperately need a miracle. How do you answer that one? Can Jesus not feed them? Now I know there is so much more to this miracle in Mark 6 and to what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples about faith in the kingdom of God. But into the context and reality of world poverty, surely the words and that phrase in verse 37 brings a real and definite challenge. You give them something to eat. Do you know the disciples physically couldn't and therefore Jesus miraculously had to. We physically can. There is enough to go around. There is enough to share. And therefore Jesus shouldn't have to. It's an interesting thought. Final incident for this morning begins at verse 45. Jesus is again concerned for his disciples. He's concerned for their well-being. And so he dismisses the crowd. And he sends the disciples off to a boat or in a boat to get a breather. Only this time he doesn't go with them. So this is not a come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is go away by yourselves and take a break. But in addition, Jesus needed some time alone with his father. And so verse 46 says that after leaving his disciples and leaving the crowd, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray. Even he needed and valued time out, silence, solitude, refreshment, prayer. And unfortunately, the disciples didn't get much of a rest yet again. Turns out that the wind was against them. And so they are starting to row really hard. But what I love about this moment is that Jesus sees them from his vantage point. He becomes aware of their situation and he goes out to meet them. And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 139. And verse 3 says, you are familiar with all my ways. We're never out of God's sight and therefore never out of God's mind. He notices you this morning. He sees what you've been through this week. The struggles, the rowing against the wind at times. And he still approaches you in your context and in your need. And the interesting and the really odd dimension about this moment is that Jesus almost seems intent on walking past them. Have a look at verse 48. He went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Now it's only Mark that records this detail. It's only Mark that adds that little bit and it's puzzled commentators for years. Like, was Jesus really going to walk by? Or was it just that the disciples thought he was going to walk by? Well, I have no idea. But it seems that even though Jesus was there, they failed to recognize him. In fact, they thought he was just a ghost. Interesting that disciples believed in ghosts. And so they cry out, they long for help, they long for hope. And I wonder how many times you've found yourself in a similar place. It's not that you see ghosts, but in your difficulty and in your struggle and in your adversity, all you see are the problems, all you sense is the fear. And you almost totally miss the tangible presence, promised presence of God. And so Jesus needs to speak into their lives. And Jesus needs to speak into our lives. And he needs to speak words of encouragement to these disciples. Words of comfort. Words that actually give them a fresh perspective. Words that actually appear time and time again in scripture. It's a really interesting study to trace the number of times that these words or words like them appear in God's word. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And you know, Jesus never promised plain sailing on calm waters. But as we said last week, Jesus has promised to be with us to the end of the age. And so he sees and he knows what you're going through at the moment. And he walks into your life's circumstances and he reminds you or he challenges you stay strong. He assures you of his identity. It is I. And he comforts you in your distress. Don't be afraid. It's natural. It's so natural whenever you're in the midst of stuff that's kicking off all around you and you've no idea what's happening. And you're afraid and you're fearful. And you're not sure what lies around the corner. And the pain is real and the adversity is intense. It is so understandable to just think, God is passing me by. He's missing me out here. Seems to be with everyone else. Seems to be for everyone else. But he just seems to be leaving me out of it. And yet you need to know that Jesus actually does see you from his vantage point. He sees you this morning and he walks into your life and he walks into your circumstances and he simply says three things. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And for some this morning, that's all they maybe need to hear. That's all they need to hear. And Jesus climbs into their boat and the wind dies down and they're amazed, but then there's a sting in the tail. Verse 52 finishes with some sad words. Their hearts were hardened. Seems odd, doesn't it? That here's a bunch of guys who begin a chapter on a mission. They actually preach successfully. They drive out lots of demons. They heal lots of sick people, according to verse 12. They witnessed 5,000 plus people being fed miraculously. They've watched Jesus walk on water. They've watched Jesus calm yet another storm in their lives. And yet, they still haven't grasped who he was. They still weren't actually prepared to accept that with Jesus, anything is actually possible. And I wonder where we are at this morning. Lots of us his disciples. But lots of us still limiting him. Lots of us still boxing him. Lots of us unconvinced that he really can step in and do something in our lives. I've got 11 questions for you this morning. Uh, and if you do want a copy of what I'm about to show you, and lots of you do email me and ask me for these, and I really appreciate that. Uh, And I'd encourage more of you to do it. And if some of you uh, would like to ask me to do that on the way out, just give me your email address and I'll do it. If some of you don't have email and want a hard copy, just tell me and I'll get one to you. But here's 11 questions or thoughts to take away from this morning. Growing up in Northern Ireland or elsewhere, what was your impression of Jesus? How can we as individuals and as a church reintroduce Jesus to people or people to Jesus? Identify someone you know who's the only Christian in their home or workplace and pray for them this week. Does witnessing for Jesus fill you with a sense of adventure or terror? Why is that? Have you made any rash decisions you now regret? What can or should you now do? What situations do you need to speak truth into? Next one. What holds us back from challenging sinful choices, sinful behavior in our context? When was the last time you went with Jesus to a quiet place and rested? When will you do that this week? Take time this week to reflect on the thought that all you have is all you need when placed in the Master's hands. And how will that phrase, you give them something to eat, affect your choices this week? And into what situation do you need to hear those words of Jesus? Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid.